This is Investing Experts. I'm Daniel Snyder. In this episode, I'm joined by audience favorite, Chris DeMuth Jr., the man behind Rangley Capital and investing group, Sifting the World. We're doing a check-in on his big stock idea for 2023 that is already up 30% since he posted the idea to Seeking Alpha in January, and hear why he says that it still has room to run. Then we get the scoop as he shares a very timely event-driven trade that he has on the books right now and how investors can partake in the catalyst of the trade. And finally, we wrap up with getting a rundown of his positioning in the crypto space. Listener, if you're one of the many tens of thousands that we have and you haven't yet shared your review of investing experts to the world, let me tell you, I got an email from the world and they want to know what you think. Please take a minute when you can and leave your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to this podcast. And don't forget, you can follow Investing Experts Podcast on Seeking Alpha, engage in the comments, see show notes, the data, the graphs, everything that we always reference is always there waiting for you to take a look. Now that's enough for me. Let's get into the interview. All right, Chris. So let's go ahead. It's been a few months. Uh, January, at the end of January, we had a webinar. You pitched your big idea for the year, Innovate, ticker V-A-T-E. I've got to ask you, here we are, May 1st. What is the update? Well, um, I guess I should launch with the caveat or the the focus on the fact that this is a leveraged equity. Um it could do anything. It could go to zero. It could uh, be a 10-bagger. I think uh, the uh, latter is more likely than the former, but it is uh, something that you have to, as always, uh, do your own work, think for yourself, buyer beware, especially when there's leverage, and glance at the debt when you're thinking about the equity. And it is a a high yielding uh, debt, which gives some indication of what at least credit guys think of its prospects. Uh, So uh, I guess starting on a downer there, Um, but um, it remains uh, our best new idea for the year. You know, we have other things that we love. We have other things that are bigger positions, but largely because they had come into the year having uh, compounded well and or old positions that we continue to like or love. But in terms of a new fresh idea for 2023, uh, it's Innovate, ticker V-A-T-E. Uh, what's happened since then? Uh, so we had a uh, checklist of things to look for this year, and we've kind of been um, uh, making some progress on it. Uh, I guess the, the big thing is that there was uh, over $30 million of net cash proceeds from a put obligation from a contract that they had. And one of the first things I was looking for this year is, boy, um, I love this idea. I own this idea. And I am sticking my neck out in a guillotine where I could uh, get it chopped off right away in that they had a big uh, debt payment owed almost immediately. It was going to kind of be the next news item right after me talking about how I owned it and liked it and thought it was my best idea for the year. And uh, they uh, received the cash proceeds. They paid their big kind of uh, uh, kind of service their debt and service their debt. I had no real concern that they wouldn't. Uh, it was obviously consistent with my understanding, uh, but they didn't need to raise new capital or do anything at all innovative uh, to, uh, so to speak, to uh, get it paid. They got the cash, they 
paid the bonds and will be able to do so again and you know call it six months but don't have any kind of cash crunch immediately so that is a big deal that kind of helped de-risk take the kind of debacle uh scenario off the table um there is one i mean i had kind of six things you can look back to the old uh, article that i wrote on the kind of details um there was one that's a little bit uh unexpected that they had a poison pill and i was very much looking for that to expire they renewed it um i have mixed feelings uh my first level thinking here and generally with poison pills is i don't like it uh there are there are tens of thousands of securities you can invest in. And if somebody wants to pay a premium for any one of them that I owe, I uh, own, I'm quite open to it. By definition, I think everything I own is worth uh, uh, significantly more than the market price, but I'm open to anybody who wants to make an offer for buying anything I own for more than the market price, not necessarily going to vote for it, but happy to hear it. I can invest elsewhere. Uh, and so um, I think for almost any investor, the constraint of their own uh, capital is more constraint than the opportunity cost of stuff to invest in. So I think for the most part, management entrenchment is motivated and an agency problem. It's especially the case if it's not on a very short shot clock. Uh, so I'm not happy that the poison pill was extended, but the second level thinking is, I think there are specific reasons why it was, and I always like the specific reasons why it is. So it can be a good indicator that there's inbound interest and inbound interest, maybe the management doesn't like, but that is, uh, or the board doesn't like, or parts of the board of management doesn't like. Uh, so that kind of is an intriguing development. Uh, and then thirdly, you have a pivotal study on the life sciences area and and just people can hear what we talked about in the past read what we've written about in the past but um life sciences is the part of this strange little conglomerate that i am far and away the most focused on in terms of the uh upside possibility of something really hitting big uh, and in this case, we've been focusing carefully on the FDA process. Uh, we um, were hoping and expecting we'd get good news on Metabeacon and that uh, Metabeacon is one of the areas that we think, you know, it would be uh, late in the year, but that we could get uh, approval for a product that we think is highly promising. Um, there's some new FDA submissions. We don't have a definitive answer yet, but if you look at their correspondence with the FDA, they have some pretty mundane, pretty promising tests that in my mind presuppose the success of the major pivotal study. So what uh, the best way to say this is um, follow on tests that the FDA would want that wouldn't really be applicable were they not generally in line with the company working really closely and successfully. So we think that there's going to be a very good year in front of the FDA for life sciences. And that's not news, but that's kind of a really good indication we have that we're kind of on track for the year. So uh, in short, uh, year to date, 
uh, innovates up a little over 30 percent uh it is still trading beneath three dollars a share i think it's a gift there i think it is worth uh expected value wise at least um, significantly more than that uh and so on track uh uh four months uh into the year um and some good news on the uh debt deleveraging uh cash side some ambiguous news on the poison pill side some incomplete news on the fda side but i think that uh i would not in hindsight switch out our best new idea for 2023 uh our uh, kind of price alert for uh sifting the world members is at four and i think beneath that it gives a big margin of safety, at least to its expected value. It could be volatile. It is leveraged. So size accordingly. Now, listener, if you want to go back and watch this webinar that we had with Chris back in January of this year, when he broke down everything about Innovate, just head over to the show notes page. We'll make sure we put the link in there for you as well. Now, Chris, you mentioned right before we started recording that you're actually watching the litigation of this next idea today. Like you're taking a break to talk to me, which is awesome. What is this idea? What is this event trade opportunity that you see here? So uh, this is uh, one of... Uh, my largest and favorite positions, uh, not to get overly lost in the semantics, but when we were kind of coming up with the best new idea for 2023, one of my limitations on new, I didn't want to uh, uh, bore uh, Sifting the World members uh, to tears. This is something that is uh, actually a much larger position. Uh, it's a significant investment of mine. Um, we have uh, had it uh, since the past a fall. Um, and it was one where I think it was a true arbitrage where we bought it, where it was trading significantly less than the uh, value, either as a standalone or as a uh, successful uh, litigation winner. We are now literally in the middle of trial. So when I say that, I was um, uh, closely monitoring the court case uh, minute to minute all last week and uh, stopped only to speak with you and we'll be jumping back in the middle of trial uh, the second we're done talking. Um, but I'll tell you the setup and I'll tell you where we are because it's kind of in terms of breaking uh, opportunities, it's the thing that I'm really most focused on this week. Uh, next time we speak, it'll be on to something else, but this is the one that I'm right in the middle of. So uh, last ball. Uh, the uh, company, Spectrum Brands, um, is uh, uh, perhaps one that needed to um, delever. It was one that wanted to refocus its uh, branded consumer products and did a big asset sale uh, to uh, Asa Abloy. So it had a, um, a big deal that was a huge percentage of uh, its market cap at the time. It's not exactly merger ARP. It's not something where you get any combination of cash or stock or other merger securities, but it was one where you own the company and it would be uh, much de-risked, much more valuable uh, with this big uh, asset sale. So it was a very good deal. I actually think it was a good deal for both sides. As Apple, I wanted to kind of come in um, and uh, Spectrum wanted to sell. And everything was going smoothly until uh, the uh, Department of Justice weighed in. Now, 
we have an incredibly aggressive FTC right now uh, on antitrust issues. You, you not only have three Democrats and zero Republicans, you literally have three Yale Law School Democrats that are uh, led by FTC chairman with uh, kind of a religious zeal outside of any historical ideological spectrum represented by prior Democrat and, and Republican administrations. And a DOJ that's kind of trying to catch up or keep up. Uh, and so you have an AAG that has been bringing really aggressive rhetoric to speeches, including dropping one right in the middle of this review, uh, anti-fixes um, uh, that basically say, we want to stop more deals. Well, uh, this was not one where he weighed in. Um, uh, he, he didn't weigh in explicitly on what they were supposed to do. Um, but I would say it was kind of a case, I say it's like when Henry II uh, said, uh, well, no one rid me of this turbulent priest, like the troops got the message. And so they blocked this deal on the basis of um, high-end door locks is the, is the area. So not something that's really has that much partisan or ideological or progressive or populist appeal, right? These are, these are kind of fancy locks uh, uh, that kind of deepen the discretionary or luxury category. You could just put a normal lock on, but these are, you know, smart locks, integrated locks, that kind of thing. Okay, so this problem. Uh, throughout the conversation with the DOJ, the company's reaction was, we hear what you're worried about, a little weird, but whatever. We will fix the entire thing. So you, we have your concern and we will do all of it. And uh, the DOJ just wouldn't take yes for an answer. Uh, they, they wanted the fight. I mean, this, this was um, something where I think they had no political downside. They just wanted to make this as uh, uh, difficult as possible. They sued to block and uh, the companies put out a fix that they had enunciated they were going to do with a very good buyer. The government did not want it chopped up into lots of pieces. They said, fine, we'll sell it to one buyer. They didn't want it to be private equity. They said, fine, it'll be a strategic buyer. They uh, basically said yes across the board. And then the DOJ said no to the company saying yes. So it's a, it's a weird situation. Uh, and uh, uh, but they've not indicated that they want to settle on the uh, government side. The company's kind of bent over backwards uh, 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 as far as it's possible to. Uh, and we got in front of a judge. The judge actually got switched up in the process. Uh, we had all of the preliminaries, and now we are right in trial. So these things don't always get to court, but they're in the middle of it now. And just kind of setting just a, an approximate framework for how to think about uh, the stock. So um, I think when the deal was originally sued, it kind of traded right down to a, uh, a very low, you traded down under 40. I think that that's kind of worst case standalone. I think kind of base case standalone might be 45, best case, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna be like 40 to 50, call it, uh, on its own. Uh, and then kind of 80 to 90 uh, with a success in court. And I think the companies came in with very strong hands. Um, 
after having listened to a week of people talk in excruciating detail about door locks. And if you ask yourself, how could you talk about door locks for five days? That's a good question because, uh, you know, they lock, they unlock, they're made out of metal. And if I was asked, please do go on, I say, no, that's not the summary. That's like the totality of what interesting things there are to say about locks, uh, but they can actually talk about it for five days. And these two parties do not like each other. They're not communicating well, so they don't stipulate anything. So uh, they'll even go through some lengthy section and they'll say, well, this doesn't actually matter to our case, but they still won't just kind of agree to terms on anything. And they will, just to get things in the record, ask repetitive questions that seems like it's something out of, you know, hostage negotiation where you're trying to break down the kidnapper and have them uh, relent out of boredom. Uh, but uh, so there's kind of, um, it's not a smooth process getting through this information in a pretty simple market, uh, but we're five days into that. And I would say we're still 80% chance the companies win this. Uh, you know, um, the government's case is not absurd on its face. It's a little bit better than that. Uh, but there hasn't been any, this would have made bad TV. I mean, I have, you know, um, I have many millions of dollars at stake that keeps me interested. But if I didn't, I would not uh, turn this into a miniseries so far. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, uh, it's a mystery other than the political dynamics that uh, even if the government were right, and I think they're just not right, I mean, they have no econometrics, I, I, I have a little bit of a sense behind the politics in terms of why they care, but even if they were right, why do they care? Is there nothing else to do? Is our government really this big and this crowded with lawyers that they can just kind of parse this just almost infinitely insignificant theory on antitrust. So yeah, five days in, and um, uh, I don't know if me railing about how boring it is is more entertaining than me having to listen to the five days, but I can tell you, uh, it's been, um, it was, um, I was earning uh, my keep by listening to this thing for the first week. Hopefully the second week is more entertaining. Yeah, well, Chris, let me ask you that. So you said you're five days into the trial already. I mean, as an investor looking at potentially buying the stock here in the 60s, uh, how long do you think this trial is going to go? Like when should investors expect the decision to be made to see a return? It doesn't sound as if we are going to get a settlement. It sounds like this is going to go to a decision. Um, I own the equity and Think that is such a great expected value. I mean, I thought it was phenomenal at 40, at 50, at 60, and I think at 66, 72, when last time I looked at the price, it, it is under, I mean, it's hard for me to play with numbers, even, even just kind of being pretty uh, punitive about my assumptions. It's hard to come up with an expected value that, that that says it should trade less than 70. I think that it's too eventy for fundamental guys and too fundamental for eventy guys. And it's not exactly a merger arb, so it just doesn't fit in anywhere neatly. Um, so we should um, uh, have clarity in, uh, in June, you know? Um, so I would say uh, uh, not May options expiration probably, but uh, June probably uh, for people uh, playing at home. Um, and what do we know so far? The parties were both ready to litigate, which usually they are, but sometimes there are aspects of their case in discovery 
that in hindsight, they never really wanted to see the inside of the courtroom, right? And in Delaware, where I spend quite a lot of my time or a lot of my energy thinking about, you know, the recent, for example, the Fox case, they had aspects of discovery. They did not want to see the inside of the courtroom. That was going to settle. Uh, and these settlements often happen literally, I mean, people say on the courthouse steps, sometimes quite literally on the courthouse steps, sometimes the morning of, sometimes you get to the courtroom and there's a, there's a post-it note on the door saying case is canceled. Uh, and, uh, cause it puts maximal pressure right before the trial starts. So at this level, the uh, quality of the litigators is pretty good on average. And so you almost always have to balance both cases and really just focus on what they're trying to say, remember that it's adversarial, and then kind of balance it against the other side when they get to have their piece. But while they're talking, they normally make sense. I mean, I think the uh, Twitter case in Delaware last year was one of the few cases where listening to the Musk side of it sounded like utter nonsense, even when they were presenting their side. I mean, it just, it, it, uh, the the uh, company almost didn't need to present their side of the case. That was so one-sided. This is not that case. When the government uh, speaks, they have, um, I mean, they come across as, you know, they're sane and they're sober and they're free and they're in recognizance. They're not that much better than that standard, but they're not, it, it's not a joke. They're not, a, they're not a joke. Um, what can we glean from this? Um, the judge appears to be interested in minutia around this divestiture package. So Fortune is the buyer of the entire overlap uh, in this jurisdiction in the U.S. Uh, and, and more generally in, in North America, they're buying the whole thing the government complained about. And they strike me as highly plausible. I don't know that they're going to going to win the day. I think likelihood that Amazon or somebody comes in and wipes out all these guys seems to me far more likely than the likelihood that they have some kind of monopoly with pricing power. Um, I think bankruptcy before pricing power has been the case in many, many of the deals that the government uh, is concerned about because they don't have any sense of market dynamism. They think everything is sort of uh, mechanistic and deterministic and that they really know things that are unknowable. And if they did know they should be multi-trillionaires because they know about what all the smart people are trying to do behind your back to take your profits and eat your lunch, which is usually not knowable, but the market's a dynamic place and uh, competition works. And competition doesn't come from the sources that they think they know about just by their kind of lawyers uh, subpoenaing people. Um, but uh, the judge seems very curious about a divestiture package at levels of minutia that either uh, she's... Uh, lying or joking or more curious about locks than I am, or intends to seriously consider uh, approving the deal with the divestiture plan, quite possibly tweaked a bit. I don't think it's going to be material. I don't think uh, it's clear to me the buyer and the seller and the divestor buyer are all quite committed to this. It's, it's, it's economically attractive to all three. And so I don't think it would be material to anyone if she tweaked around the edges of the definition of the package. She seems not only interested in the vesture, but in her ability, uh, which she does have as the judge to tweak if necessary. So um, uh, that is a positive. Uh, she intervenes in the, she, she was a litigator and so she's kind of used to that role. She intervenes in the working of her courtroom, which is very much her right, uh, uh, more than almost any judge I've ever seen. I mean, she's just constantly asking questions 
and getting involved in even just the wording of how the various parties should be asking witnesses questions. Um, so she's really actively wrestling with this. She tells us she hasn't made her decision yet, and she tells us to not read into her questions, but of course, I, that's what I do, so uh, sorry. Uh, and uh, so that might make me nervous with what such a one-sided estimate of where things are. Maybe it's closer to 50-50, uh, but um, I think it's pretty much status quo ante. The um, witnesses that the trial led off with were uh, for the prosecutor side, so unsurprisingly, it's like, oh, that's not the precise fact pattern you'd want. But just to uh, delve into really quickly two kind of aspects of this trial that I think are driving the prosecution and are quite misplaced. One, they think they're Sherlock Holmes and they found hot docs is usually how it's described as, you know, this is, you know, these conniving uh, evil companies with these rich businessmen that are trying to fix prices on their consumers, I mean, consumers that want to buy expensive locks. Um, geez, okay. Uh, uh, and we got them. And when they say they got them, you know, these businessmen, you know, upper middle management, they never really know for sure what's going on, uh, but they say all sorts of things. And there's certain verbiage that's just how salesmen talk or salesy people talk or people in salesy roles talk. And it's often a little macho. It's often a little um, depreciating of competitors. And it's actually pro-competitive, not anti-competitive that they say, you know, we're going to crush the competition. And the DOJ lawyers, are they're very earnest and they're smart in their way, but they're also kind of ridiculous. They're like, oh, we caught them. He said he's going to crush the competition. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not how DOJ lawyers talk. That is how guys who are trying to sell locks talk and they have the freedom of speech and they can say whatever they want. And it was ill-advised and it sounds like an antitrust violation. Uh, but if you found a football player who said, I'm going to kill him this Sunday, that's not a murder threat either. And if you have any kind of common sense, you would notice that. And if you're a DOJ lawyer, you wouldn't. Um, and also, in this case, and, and the very specific issue on the divestiture package is, can you divest North American locks? And the answer is, of course you can. Uh, but the point that they think they have, and they, and, they, and they authentically seem to love this point, it's a dumb point, but they like it, is you can't do that because it's not the global business. And the people who have the uh, the infrastructure within the companies to run and to emphasize the global business have a lot of kind of uh, Harvard Business School McKinsey talk about the benefits of global integration and this and that. And it's rhetorical. And sometimes they talk about it and they kind of list the countries and so forth. And the, the government really thinks they got them because you can't just have an American business. And then they'll kind of try to interject. And one thing that's hard about the cases is you can't reject the premise of the question, you have to answer yes, no. And they kind of under the breath say, well, we have no sales in this other country that you know the, 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 the government thinks is, is needed and that you can't do this separately as the US. Um, so they're talking past each other on whether this market can be divested, it can, whether it can be standalone, it can, whether the uh, buyer is good enough, it is. And the significance of a case where there's really no econometrics, there's no evidence of any of this. This is just, the government's just saying stuff. Uh, but as they uh, say stuff, uh, 
the uncomfortable defense isn't always things that individual executives would want to say or the companies would want to say like our regular locks are perfectly fine so when rich people who have extra money want luxury we have to kind of dream up how to make it luxury uh and this comes across in the automotive industry too where like the best thing is best because it's so studied because it's done for the mass market and you have to kind of dream up ways to make it more expensive for people who want to pay more money and you don't want to say it like that you don't want to define luxury like that but it's kind of true and you know they know it and they're kind of trying to parse out how much of that they admit so that that's kind of a silly topic and they don't want to admit that they don't have an evil scheme to take over the world and that they are kind of winging it and they don't know what the market share is going to be and they don't know how the deal is going to work out. They don't know the competition. They don't know what the competitors want. And they're all just trying to do the best that they can. And the most honest version and the most humble version gets them out of the antitrust problem, but maybe more decisively than they want to be out of the, I mean, out of the antitrust problem. So it's a weak case. It was always a weak case. It seems just as weak after a week. Uh, incidentally, the stock was a little soft from call it 70 to mid 60, simply because there was no settlement. And so you own some optionality that they would never see inside the courtroom. And that embedded call became worthless last week. And so that cost five bucks. But if you're not in it, you're on a cost basis. So that's kind of where things stand. I think it's a very underfollowed, underappreciated situation. Um, I think that with a kind of fanatically aggressive regulatory regime in DC right now, uh, you want to be incredibly careful before something gets in front of a judge because you could say, well, that case is nonsense, but yeah, they could still bring it and uh, wait until they bring the cases, review the case. And when they're weak, uh, you know, the judge uh, is... Um, going to be the equivalent of when a value investor says the old value investor saw is that the market's a, a, a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. Uh, the regulators are the voting machine and the judge is the weighing machine. And this is a judge uh, like most who I trust to weigh correctly. And I think the correct decision is to let the deal go through. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to run us through this potential opportunity for all investors. Uh, before we let you go, because you've given us so much of your time, which we really, really appreciate, wanted to get your thoughts on the crypto space. What do you think about what's happening in the legal world around Coinbase and this Bitcoin spot ETF that just can't seem to get off the ground? I uh, would disclose that I'm uh, short Coinbase. Uh, I'm long uh, the Grayscale Trust, and it's um, uh, sort of the related thought um, that I take this SEC very seriously. I think that the likelihood that we'll see uh, a big litigation between the SEC and Coinbase shortly is very high. Uh, both the SEC uh, ahead and the agency generally are going to have to contend with quite a big paper trail on the topic of crypto, what's a commodity, what's a security, um, but there's a big focus there. One of the things I really pay attention to on regulatory issues is uh, personnel and when the chairman thanks the people working on crypto generally and almost certainly 
Coinbase in particular, he lists a long list of killers. These are not settlers. These are not people who are trying to make nice. These are people who are ones that you would take very seriously if you were on the receiving end of their attention. And Coinbase is coming out to fight. So this is going to be a big fight, I believe. Um, it's going to be very tricky for Coinbase, I believe. And I am uh, short the stock. So I think by the time we uh, next speak, we'll have seen um, more details. But I think we're going to see uh, a complaint uh, from the SEC that will be uh, serious, possibly terminal to Coinbase. Um, now, uh, Grayscale. Uh, we're long. Uh, we're long for uh, the, it's kind of the hedge against the Coinbase short in a sense, but um, I have an embedded call option on their being able to convert to a, an ETF. I, I, I do not think it's more than 50-50. I don't actually think it's all that close to 50-50. Um, it's being litigated right now. I actually found the uh, government's case far less persuasive than I thought it would be once they got in uh, to it. Um, one of the three judges uh, happens to be somebody I quite, quite admire and hope and expect to be on the Supreme Court someday, uh, sounded very skeptical of the government, but I think it could be one, two uh, 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 in favor of the government. I don't quite know. Um, I, I think it's it's a hard route to get this converted uh, and capture the entirety of the uh, major discount to uh, NAV. Um, but I think that if you listen to the company and you listen to their um, explanation for why they do want to convert to the ETF, they are just making... Um, uh, way too much money. They're costing way too much. It's indefensible to have a trust in this uh, structure. And the, the the market reaction is this uh, massive NAV discount, which we hope to capture some way or another. And I think that there are other routes than just the direct conversion to ETF. I think that there will be very there'll be a very active, very organized, very vocal shareholder base. And there's going to be other litigation. And I would uh, a point, uh, for example, to uh, the Alameda administrator. Um, these uh, bankruptcy litigation uh, administrators are very highly compensated and have been aggressive in recent years. You know, going back to the Madoff administrator, it's amazing how much money that they can collect. Uh, the claims have been consistently really great investments in some of the big kind of fraud scandal uh, uh, names. Uh, and uh, if anybody was ever thinking of committing accounting fraud, they'd be much better off committing accounting fraud uh, administration. It's legal, it's ethical, and you make like extraordinary amounts of money for doing it anyways. And I think I think the history of the uh, administrators uh, is, is a more lucrative one. Uh, and you don't have to worry about the door coming off the hinges and getting dragged away to jail, which is uh, uh, also has its virtues. Um, so I think that they're really going to come hard against great scale. I think there's a lot of ways to unlock this huge discount. Uh, the least likely is probably just converting to the ETF. If they do that, it's better than I thought uh, and faster than I thought. Uh, but there's a lot of ways to win that. And so I think that um, I think that uh, GBTC is uh, a very flawed security uh, with very conflicted management, but uh, price solves everything. And the huge discount solves that one for me. So I think that, that one um, is... Um, 
interesting as a hedge. I think that Coinbase is in a lot of trouble and that we will hear more about that by the next time we speak. So in regards to uh, GBTC, I'm looking at the, the share price right now. It's about $16. Uh, if this thing gets unlocked and converted, what kind of return are you kind of expecting there? Um, let's see. You know, I think it's, I think the, you know, the uh, pop here um, would be pretty significant. So, you know, you look at uh, something that has, you know, call it $27 of uh, Bitcoin and you're buying $27 of Bitcoin um, for, you know, 25, 27, kind of mid twenties of Bitcoin and uh, you are uh, buying it for you know, 10 bucks off. Uh, so yeah, so it goes from uh, call it, uh, and of course this is all like, depends on what Bitcoin does, uh, but you know, um, pops five to 10 bucks. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. At times, myself or the guest might own positions in the securities mentioned, but this is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. We'll see you next episode.